0: 2 Kings, chapter 9, reading from verse 1 and reading the whole of the chapter. The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, Tuck your cloak into your belt. Take this flask of oil with you and go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, Go to him, get him away from his companions, and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head, and declare, This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run, don't delay. So the young man, the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, he found the army officers sitting together. I have a message for you, commander, he said. For which of us? asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Bahasha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel. No one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, Is everything all right? Why did this madman come to you? You know the man and the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. That's not true, they said. Tell us. Jehu said, Here is what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So Jehu's son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram and all Israel had been defending Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him in the battle with Hazael, king of Aram. Jehu said, If this is the way you feel, don't let anyone slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then he got into his chariot and rode to Jezreel, because Joram was resting there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had gone down to see him. When the lookout, standing on the tower in Jezreel, saw Jehu's troops approaching, he called out, I see some troops coming. Get a horseman, Joram ordered. Send him to meet them and ask, do you come in peace? The horseman rode off to meet Jehu and said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? What do you have to do with peace? Jehu replied, fall in behind me. The lookout reported, the messenger has reached them, but he isn't coming back. So the king sent out a second horseman. When he came to them, he said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? Jehu replied, What do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. The lookout reported, He has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. The driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a madman. Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out, each in his own chariot, to meet Jehu. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth, the the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound. Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab, his father, when the Lord made this prophecy about him. Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord. And I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground declares the Lord. Now then, pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled up the road to Beth Hagan. Jehu chased him, shouting, kill him too. They wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Ger near Ibliam, but he escaped to Megiddo and died there. His servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem and buried him with his fathers in his tomb in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king of Judah. Then Jehu went to Jezreel. When, When Jezebel heard about it, she painted her eyes, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, Zimri, you murderer of your master? He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Jehu went in and ate and drank. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull her feet and her hands. They went back and told Jehu who said, This is the word of the Lord that that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like refuse on the ground in the plot at Jezreel so that no one will be able to say, This is Jezebel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody. Uh, Let's pray as we uh, come to look at God's word. Father, we do thank you for uh, the scriptures. We pray that you would help us now to uh, focus on what you are saying to us, that we would understand uh, this word and that we would apply it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, That's the idea, you guys. Andrew, we found if we move the uh, computer laptop away from the um, transmitter, then that tends to do the trick. Okay. Well, I want to talk about purity of the church today. And it seems to me, and I would certainly hope, that the purity of the church is something which we would all say is a good thing. Right? It's good to be pure as a church. But what about when we have to take action for the sake of purity? Uh, How do we feel about it then? Sometimes that can be a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, When you think about it, what are the main things which cause impurity in the church? Well I I can't prove it but it seems to me that there are three issues. One is false doctrine, another one is divisive behaviour and another one is immorality. And when those, uh, either one of those things finds a bit of a foothold in the church, they tend to spread, and it becomes very difficult to deal with. One of the reasons it's difficult to deal with impurity in the church be- is because these things always involve people. Uh, they involve people who often uh, we will love, they'll involve people whose Feelings that we don't want to hurt. Uh, Nobody wants to hurt someone's feelings and so it's difficult to deal with issues of impurity. Um, Think, for example, just about that one issue of false teaching. Uh, These days it is politically incorrect to say that uh, somebody is wrong about God. Um, Our society says that tolerance is more important than truth that uh, people's feelings are more important than God's feelings. And sometimes this affects how we think as Christians. <clears throat> um, think about, uh, for example, the man I wrote about in the bulletin, on the front page of the book Have you had a look at that as yet? Uh, Harold Camping is his name. Uh, he hit the headlines about a month or so ago because he said that he had found the secret key to understanding the Bible... Uh, understanding the exact date that Jesus was going to return. And so he told the whole world that, and invested many millions of dollars uh, telling the whole world that Jesus was going to return last month. Now, when I uh, wrote that article in the bulletin, I must admit that I actually felt a little bit uncomfortable about uh, saying that he is a false teacher, I mean, clearly he's a false teacher. He's twisted the scriptures. He's misled people. He's a false teacher. But I felt a bit uncomfortable about saying that. I feel uncomfortable saying it now. And he's, he's a guy who lives on the other side of the planet. Um, what if someone in our church was saying and teaching things which were wrong about God uh, and deliberately doing so? How much more uncomfortable would it be to address that situation uh, where it is so personal. It sounds judgmental, doesn't it, to say that someone is wrong about God and is a false teacher. And I think it's partly because of this that we sometimes find certain parts of the Bible to be even a little bit uncomfortable. Because God actually commands that his people should be purged of impurity. Uh, That the the corporate people of God should be purged. And uh, in the Old Testament, that sometimes meant actually uh, putting the person outside of the camp, uh, alienating them in some way. But in other parts of the Old Testament, it also involved, killing the person. Now, how do you feel about that? bit uncomfortable? What's that, Michelle? Yeah, it's illegal these days. We don't actually burn people at the stake uh, these days. I'll I'll tell you why a bit later. Um, But it makes, sometimes we think, well God sounds a little bit harsh and we may even be, uh, feel that uh, we've got some cause to even doubt the Bible. We've got a chance to explore some of those issues today into Kings chapters nine and ten. If you want to open that up on page two sixty six, but let me while you're doing that, let me paint a picture for you. Uh, the year is eight hundred and forty one B C. We're in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, there was two kingdoms, Israel and the north, Judah in the south. Uh, we're in the northern kingdom. It's 841 BC. Israel was supposed to be a nation that was purely devoted to God. But in 841 BC, we see that that is far from the case. Why? Well, there was a number of problems. The Main problem in this passage is Baal worship. Remember, remember Baal worship. Who was it who introduced Baal worship to Israel? It was. Come on, help me. Yes, Lachlan. No, no. It were you're getting close. It was Queen Jezebel. Good try, Lachlan. Thanks for having a crack at it. Queen Jezebel introduced Baal worship into Israel and Baal worship uh, spread, became very popular. It was a pagan fertility cult. You know what that means, don't you? It means that in order to worship, that men would go to the temple of Baal where they would engage with prostitutes and uh, that would be kind of like a virtual way of a simulation of procreation happening in the heavenlies, which according to Baal worship would then fertilise the ground so the crops would grow, uh, the livestock would reproduce and so on. It was very false, it was very immoral and it was very popular. You can see why. In 2 Kings chapter 9, the king of Israel was a man by the name of Joram. Uh, He was the son of Ahab and Jezebel and he was bad news. Uh, Meanwhile, down south in Judah, a king called Ahaziah sat on the throne and he was bad news as well. You see, his father had married one of uh, Ahab's daughters. So although he was the king of the southern kingdom... Ahab was his grandfather. Uh, that meant, of course, that the king of the northern kingdom, Joram, was his uncle. It's a bit like some of these European families, royal families, that kind of all mix and breed with one another and get connected. Have a look at um, what it says about him in chapter 8, verse 27. Eight twenty-seven. this is what it says about Ahaziah. He walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the eyes of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done for he was related by marriage to Ahab's family. Okay, so that's the situation. It's messy, it's not pure and false worship abounds. Now, friends, some people think of God as being some sort of a grandfather figure who... It's all kind of fluffy and sits in heaven and doesn't really care too much about sin. Uh, That's not the God of the Bible. God cares deeply about sin and God will not allow rebellion against him to continue forever. And so in chapter 9, God acts. Now, what does he do? Well, he replaces the king in Israel. Uh, In uh, the first half of chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, we're introduced to a man by the name of Jehu. Now, Jehu is a tough guy. He's one of the commanders in Joram's army. And in chapter 9 there, God, through his prophet, anoints Jehu to be the king of Israel. Now, there's no big coronation ceremony. No one else knows about it. It's done privately. Uh, What we're told there is in verses 1 to 5 is that God sent a prophet to his house. The prophet poured oil over his head and said, you're king. And that was it. As far as God was concerned, Jehu was now the king. But have a listen to what God was going to do Through Jehu. Chapter 9, verse 6, second part. He says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master. And I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. Right? Now, uh, it goes on to say, I'll make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baisha, son of Ahijah. And as for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. And then the prophet opened the door and ran. Now, three things. One, God will avenge the blood of his servants. Uh, two, the family of, the family line of Ahab is going to be wiped off the face of the planet, And number three, you've got to love this one. Uh, Jezebel, her flesh is going to be eaten by dogs. Right? Um, I notice this story is not on the Sunday school curriculum for our church. Has anyone ever seen this in one of those children's story Bibles? No. No, not surprised. didn't think so. It's not pleasant. Uh, well, let's see what happened. In verse 14, Jehu uh, didn't waste any time. Uh, he mustered his troops and he went off to kill King Joram. Now, Joram was an easy target. Uh, Joram had been in a fight, in a war with the king of Aram and he'd been injured and so he'd gone back to his palace in Jezreel to recuperate from his injuries, and King Isaiah uh, from Judah, he'd gone up there to visit him, to see how he was getting along. Now, Jezreel was a significant place. Remember in 1 Kings, Jezreel was where the royal palace was, and right next to door to the royal palace there was a vineyard and the vineyard was owned by a chap by the name of Naboth. Remember Ahab thought that vineyard looks pretty nice maybe add it to the gardens of my palace and he uh, trotted on down there to to see Naboth and said mate um, give you some money for your vineyard and and Naboth said sorry buddy uh, not for sale and then Ahab went back home to his palace went to bed, uh, wouldn't eat his dinner, he was all sulking. And Jezebel said, what, what's the matter? He's told her the story and she said, don't worry about that, I'll fix it up. She had some people go and accuse uh, Naboth of, uh, of blaspheming against God. He was put on trial and they executed him and Jezebel scored the block of land. Remember that? Well, here in Jezreel you now have Jezebel's son and her nephew, the king of Judah, at that same place. That's where they were. Now, someone saw Jehu's troops coming. One of the lookouts saw him. They sent some other people out to find out who it was. Why were these troops Heading towards Jezreel. It seems that uh, when Jehu got there, that King Joram wasn't wasn't sure whether he should be suspicious or not. Uh, and in verse 21, the two kings got on their horses and they went out to meet Jehu. Notice where they met him in verse 21. Verse 21, they met him. Uh, at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. And uh, when Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? Uh, now that word peace is the word shalom uh, in Hebrew. Uh, he may, may be saying, Have you come in peace as opposed to have you come to to uh, fight against us. Uh, Or it may be that he's saying, is everything okay? Because remember, Jehu is his commander of his army. So he might want to know if there's anything that's gone wrong. And how does Jehu answer? Well, Jehu replied, how can there be peace as long as all the idolatry and the witchcraft of your mother, Jezebel, abound. It's not the answer that he was hoping for. And then Jehu killed him and had his body thrown on the field that his mother had stolen from Naboth. Then Jehu goes after the king of Judah and kills him as well. Now, I love reading the book of Proverbs. Proverbs encourage you to read the book of Proverbs. There's a little ripper in uh, chapter 1 verse 19 which says that ill-gotten gain takes away the lives of those who get it. And you can certainly see how that's the case here. This freebie, this block of land that they had annexed to their estate is starting to look very, very expensive for the family of Ahab. But Jehu, Jezebel is still alive and so now Jehu goes after Jezebel herself. I want to, I want to read that section again from chapter 9, verse 30 to 37 because it's, it's really important. Have a read of it. Chapter 9, verse 30. Then Jehu went to Jezreel When Jezebel heard about this, she painted her eyes, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, have you come in peace, Zimri, you murderer of your master? Zimri was a guy who previously had usurped the king of Israel, made himself king, and he only lasted seven days before he was killed. So she's saying to Jehu, your uh, rule is going to be short-lived. He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered the wall and the horses as they trampled underfoot. Jehu went in and ate and drank, as you do after you've just seen that happen. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter, but when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. Uh, The dogs didn't waste much time. This is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like refuse on the ground in the plot at Jezreel so that no one will be able to say this is Jezebel." Now, um, Jezebel by this stage was carrying a seniors card about with her. She was a senior citizen. But there she is. She's in this tower. She's all dolled up. You know, we Aussies would say that she was mutton dressed as lamb. Uh, if you're a Jew, you'd say, no, she was dressed as a prostitute and that was so appropriate because prostitution was so much a part of the false religion introduced into Israel. So there she is. She's tossed out of the window. Blood is splattered all over the wall and dogs eat her flesh, just as the prophet Elijah had promised. Um, is that enough blood and guts for the day? Would you like some more? Come on, secretly you would, I'm sure. (laughs) Well, there is more because the job hasn't been done as yet. Uh, Jehu needs to finish the job. And so in the first half of of chapter 10, Jehu has all of the royal family of Israel executed. Um, There's a graphic picture of that in verse 6. Uh, have a look at verse 6 of chapter 10. In verse six, uh, second part of it, it says, Now the royal princes, 70 of them, were with the leading men of the city who were rearing them. When the letter arrived, it's a letter Jehu wrote, these men took the princes and slaughtered all 70 of them. They put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jehu in Jezreel. When the messenger arrived, he told Jehu they have bought the heads of the princes. Then Jehu ordered, put them in two piles at the entrance of the city gate until morning. The the, the scar the heads of 70 princes. Why, why would God want Jehu to do that? Well, the answer is because this family line, this ungodly dynasty has got to stop. It's got to end. No one must take the place of Joram. But there's still the problem of the prophets, the priests and the ministers of Baal. Chapter 10, verse 19. Now summon, this is what Jehu says, now summon all the prophets of Baal all his ministers and all his priests so that no one is missing because I am going to hold a great sacrifice for Baal. Anyone who fails to come will no longer live. But Jehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the ministers of Baal. So what Jehu does, he uh, he's not exactly uh, 100% righteous himself. He uses a bit of deception. He says, we're going to have a big... Baal celebration. (laughs) We're going to get together all of the ministers, all of the priests, all, all of the prophets of Baal. We're going to come to the Baal temple and we're going to offer up sacrifices. What he doesn't tell them is that there's more than just animals that are going to be sacrificed. Chapter 10, verse 25. As soon as Jehu had finished making the burnt offering, he ordered the guards and officers... Go in and kill them, let no one escape. So they cut them down with the sword. The guards and officers threw the bodies out and they, they entered the inner shrine of the temple of Baal. They brought the sacred stone out of the temple and burnt it. They demolished the sacred stone of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and people have used it for a, as a latrine, latrine to this day. Don't you like that little end bit there, that nice touch that the... You've got to say that that the translators of the NIV are a little bit overly polite. Uh, the, um, the author of Two Kings wants us to know that the Temple of Baal became a toilet. That's what it is. Let's call it a toilet. And he wants the reader to know that it's still a toilet today when he wrote that. That's what Baal worship in Israel is gone. It's over. The temple is now a toilet. Do you like that? What a story. And you think to yourself, well, okay. Okay, as Christians, what are we to make of a story like this? How do you feel about it? Some of you, I know, enjoy the blood and the guts. But more likely, people feel uncomfortable. Uh, And and we we wonder, what are we to make of this? It seems to me that we need to understand two things. We need to understand, first of all, who God is and who Israel was. God is a holy God. Uh, He is perfect in every way. Uh, In his graciousness, he had chosen the descendants of Abraham to be his special people. And by great miracles, God had brought the descendants of Abraham out of their slavery in Egypt at the time of Moses. He had given them his holy law so that they would know more of him and how they were to live. And in his kindness, he brought them into the land that was flowing with milk and honey. They were to be God's people living in God's place under God's rule. They were to be different to all the other nations. And why? so that they would be a light, so that they would be able to teach the other nations about God, so that other nations would be blessed through them, so that the knowledge of God would shine forth from Israel into all of the world. They were to be different, but instead they were the same there is no difference instead of changing the world they have been changed by the world they have become like the world they do not worship god they do not obey god there is no difference and god through the pages through through his prophets has kept on warning israel But the kings of Israel have refused to listen to God. And it is because of this, it is because of God's love for the whole world that Israel must be purged. And because Old Testament Israel was a physical nation, that purging is very physical. Now, of course, God's people today is not a physical nation in the Middle East. God's people today is the Christian church. It is people of every nation who trust the gospel and who are able to say, well, actually, Jesus is my king. It's people like us. And God wants us to be holy and to be a light uh, it should be the case that non-Christians should be able to look at uh, the Christian church and should be able to look at us as individuals and say, hey, that person is different. Different to the other people at work, different to other people on the soccer team, different to other people in the mother's club. Different. And positively so. A kind of difference that says... I want to be like that. Or I'm really annoyed by that person because, this, because there is some, something really good about them. We ought to be different. And we ought to be people who have a true knowledge of God. We are to be people who are able to say to non-Christians, let me tell you who God is and what he is like. We ought to be able to say to non-Christians, Let me tell you about what God has done. Let me tell you the way to have a relationship with him through the death of Jesus on our behalf. And so you see purity of doctrine, purity of behaviour. That's what it means to be pure as a church and pure as Christians. But sometimes, of course, uh, false teaching teaching which changes, sometimes very subtly changes the, uh, the, 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 the message of the gospel and the knowledge of God, um, creeps its way into the church. Uh, I, I see it often where churches have taken the gospel of God's grace and have replaced it with a, a gospel of, of works. So that they do not teach people to simply trust in the death of Jesus for salvation. They teach people that they've got to earn their salvation through being religious, through certain good deeds and so on. That's just one example. Sometimes it's ungodly behaviour which uh, infects the church, um, like greed and materialism and just the values of our world around that just become part of who we are and we end up being no different to the world around us. So that the only difference people could see between us and anyone else is that we just go to church on Sundays and we lose our light so that we've got no light that we can shine into the spiritual darkness of our world. So the question then is how do we keep ourselves pure how do we keep the church pure Well of course uh, that's why we come to church and hear the bible being taught every week we could do a whole series on the purity of the church a good place to start is a series we did on 1 Corinthians a, a year or so ago But let me say this that unlike ancient Israel we we don't use the spear in order to keep the church pure uh, we don't burn people at the stake either. We use the words of scripture, as we saw in 2 Timothy 3 a few weeks ago, to uh, to to teach, to rebuke, and to correct. And it's something which is the responsibility of every one of us as we engage in each other's lives. As we see a brother or sister who's falling into Error in terms of their knowledge of God or into sinful behaviour. It's each one of our responsibilities. That's why we must get to know one another and must be in fellowship with one another regularly. But it is particularly the responsibility of the elders of the church. Uh, The elders of the church uh, shoulder a big responsibility to keep a check on the doctrine uh, that is taught in our church either formally or informally, and to keep a check on the godliness, uh, the behaviour uh, of us as a church and individual Christians. And when necessary, to act. Now, uh, we see this right throughout the scriptures, but uh, one um, interesting example is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, where... Paul commands... Paul says to Timothy that there are certain people in the church who are teaching stuff that's, that's not right and Timothy is told to front up to these men and to command them to stop teaching what they're teaching. Now, that's not politically correct, is it? <laughs> to front up to someone and say, hey you're wrong. And not only are you wrong, but as a leader of the church, you've got to stop teaching this. You've got to stop saying it. Sometimes, um, and the reason, of course, for that is that what these guys were saying wasn't actually helping people in their relationship with God. It was moving them away from the true knowledge of God. Uh, sometimes elders need to take the further step and that will involve uh, excluding someone from the fellowship if they refuse to stop teaching what they're teaching. That doesn't happen very often. Uh, In my 25 years of uh, ministry I've only had to do that twice and in both cases it was uh, in the event of teach false teaching what was which was clearly uh, in error and was clearly uh, going to cause great problems uh, for the work of the gospel and where the person was not willing to change. I gotta tell you it is not exactly a feel-good church experience uh, when when we need to do this sort of thing but sometimes it's necessary For the honour of God, for the purity of his people, and for the salvation of others, that the church has an effective witness. So that unlike Israel, we can be a holy people and we can be a light to the darkness of this world. Well, that's all for this week. Um, We're going to continue with uh, Two Kings next week and find out some um, uh, interesting stuff that happens to the whole northern kingdom because of their ungodliness. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for the scriptures, even and especially we pray, thank you for these hard parts of the scripture. Um, We do thank you that uh, through this we learn that you deeply desire your church to be pure Uh, and we pray for ourselves as a church that uh, you would uh, enable us to have such a clear appreciation of who you are and what you've done for us that we will have a great desire for your holy name to be upheld uh, in our words, our doctrine and in our life so that we would be a light to this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.